Please pray with me as we get started tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, and I thank you, O Lord, for the opportunity to consider some of the things that your word says. I pray that you would minister to us and speak to us, and I pray, O Lord, that uh, you would help us to take what we see and understand and apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight's lesson is uh, Biblical Reflections on War. You can't help but, uh, because of the Ukraine crisis, uh, think about this and ask the question, well, you know, where is God in all of this, and how does this apply to God, and what's happening here? Why, why do we have this war? So we're just going to look at a little bit of what the Bible says about war. This is by no means exhaustive, but we're just going to look at some examples and some passages of Scripture. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be turning to several different places. So as we consider this, as this as we consider um, what the Bible has to say about war, our first point here is this, that war comes because the world is full of sinners. Now, what this means is that uh, there's going to be war because you have people, bad people, doing bad things. And it's uh, pretty simple like that. We experience it uh, all the time when somebody around us does something to us, well, not because we've deserved it, but just because, you know, they're just being mean. Um, that, that's just the way that it is. In, in the world, there is sin, and people are going to act in sinful ways. And, of course, a war that involves nations is on a very large scale. But even in this case, when we consider Ukraine, we see that that one person really can kind of drive the thing for a whole nation. And that is not unusual either. If we look at the Bible and we look at nations, we look at kings and we consider history, we can see how one person can really influence and charge a whole nation and cause people to do these things. So we have war that comes because the world is full of sinners. Now as we consider some things in the Bible, the first passage I want us to turn to is Exodus. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Now, as we go to Exodus, you remember at the end of Genesis, um, the Lord raised Joseph and made him second over Egypt, and he brought his whole family over to Egypt, and time passes, and we come to the book of Exodus, and we read some things beginning in verse 8 about how uh, the attitudes have changed over time. So, uh, a lot of time has passed, and it says in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. Now, technically, there's no war here yet, but there is oppression on the part of the Egyptians over the children of Israel. And so, you know, here, it's not that the, it doesn't say anything that the children of Israel have done anything wrong. It's just that the Egyptian Pharaoh has looked at them and seen how they have grown and is afraid of them. And because of his fear and because of his maybe desire to have these cities built and for slave labor or whatever. His motivations were he decided to put the children of Israel under the task there, under his thumb, and to require them to work. So this is one example of 
Uh, Again, it's not because there's anything sinful on the part of the people of Israel necessarily, but it's because you have a sinner who is driving this and oppressing the people of Israel in Egypt. Another example is found in Genesis chapter 14. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 14. And again, you have a number of nations in the land of Canaan. And this is where Abram is living and Lot is living. Lot, if you remember, Abram and Lot just kind of traveled down into what was going to be the promised land. They traveled down into the land and the Lord prospers and blesses them and and Lot has his servants and cattle and, and livestock, and Abram has his servants and livestock, and the land, is just, there's just too many of them. There comes to the point where there's just too many of them, and there are contentions between Abraham's servants and Lot's servants. And so Abram, Abram and Lot, they get together, and Abram says, you pick where you want to go, and wherever you pick, you, you, I'll let you go there, and we'll go in the other direction. So Lot chooses the land of the plains. It was beautiful and lush, and uh, he decided to go there, and that's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So he goes down into that city and into that land, and Abram goes somewhere else. Well, in in Genesis chapter 14, you have a series or a number of kings who conspire together to attack another group of kings who kind of rally in order to repel the attack. But it says this, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So, You have this uh, contention that is present. And what happens in the end is that Sodom is conquered and Lot is carried away. Abram has not been involved in this battle, but uh, in these battles or in this oppression that has lasted apparently 12 years here, he's not involved. However, when Lot gets carried away, well, the Lord moves on his heart to do something about it. So he decides to get his servants, only 300 of them, and they go after these kings in order to recover Lot. And they are successful. So Abram is responding to this attack that has come from these kings, and he is going in order to recover what has been taken. And as he goes out, he is victorious As we know, if you know the story, he is victorious. The Lord gives him the victory, even with his small force. And after his victory, you have this amazing passage. There's this person who is introduced to us for the first time in Scripture, but who ends up being uh, very prominent with respect to the priesthood and the line of the Messiah there in the priesthood. It says in verse 18, this is Genesis 14, 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. So there's this praise that goes on here. He blesses the Lord. He thanks the Lord. There's this thanks and praise to the Lord of how the Lord has delivered the enemies into his hands. 
And Abram gives a tithe as an offering of praise unto him as a result of that. Now we come to the New Testament, and there are many examples that I could turn to where you have an aggressive nation just acting as the aggressor. That's what I meant to say. He's just, the the uh, nation comes against another nation, a lot of, sometimes just unprovoked and not because of anybody's fault. Jesus, in turn, this is Matthew chapter 24, so this is the, the point where the, the disciples are coming into Jerusalem, and they had, the disciples are admiring the temple and the walls and, and all of this, and and Jesus launches into this discourse about the end times. So Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24, beginning of verse 4. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear, now here's the part, verse 6 at the beginning, that's applicable to what we're talking about. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All right. So these are the beginning of sorrows. And if you read down a little bit from that passage, all of these events lead to the return of Jesus. So you have up or leading up to the return of Jesus, you have an intensification of wars and pestilences and trouble in the earth, famines and earthquakes and all of these kinds of things. And um, I, I think, you know, we're beginning to see some of these escalations take place in the earth. And as we move closer and closer to Jesus, as, as long as he desires to tarry and as long as we are blessed with life, we will see these things increase. And we can see how quickly, you know, they can impact us and Trouble us, but let us not be troubled. Let us keep trusting in the Lord, and, and uh, we know that as we see these things, that the end of the, or, or the Lord's return is coming. So as we look at these, uh, these things, and, and when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, he, wars, he's kind of warning them ahead of time that there's going to be these aggressors that are causing these wars, and threatening the peace. And so he gives a little bit of instructions of what to do to it. And as we look at what's happening with this war in Ukraine, we just kind of see this. You have this aggressor, Putin and the Russians, and they're coming into Ukraine, and it's apparently unprovoked. I mean, we obviously don't know all of the details, but uh, Putin is responsible, for whatever reason, for the death of many people. He is responsible for upending the lives of many people, and he is responsible for destroying the place. Uh, he's uh, bringing destruction to the homes and the families of millions of people in the country of Ukraine. And so what should our response be to this, uh, under this point here? Well, there are a couple of options. First of all, we might respond like Abram respond, responded. You gather your army and you fight. Now, uh, I personally don't like this option, but that's just you know my point of view and my perspective, but I acknowledge that it's not necessarily wrong. So you gather your army and you fight. You rise up in order to enforce the rights and privileges and to protect against aggressors. This is a possibility. So let's turn to Romans chapter 13, and I think we can see some of that in this passage. 
Romans chapter 13. And in this passage in Romans, Paul gives instruction. Now, now this is kind of telling because Paul is writing to the Romans and they're right there, you know, where the Roman emperor and, you know, the Roman empire is seated. And, and so he's writing this to Christians they've experienced or are going to experience uh, some persecution uh, in the days ahead. Uh, and so he says this in Romans 13. So it says, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to, to, be, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he, the government, is, a, is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now that's the part that's important. The government does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So the government has, as among its other responsibilities, the the responsibility to protect the peace or to keep the peace for the subjects of the nations. Now, if we kind of, uh, of the nation. So if we kind of broaden this a little bit, I suppose that there is the possibility, I mean, in principle anyways, of having some kind of police force on a national level. We see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where one nation will attack another nation and the nation that is attacked will try to form alliances with some other nations, whether they're right or they're wrong, uh, they form this alliance in order to repel the attack. So we see this a number of times in the Old Testament. And I suppose it's possible uh, in our day for the same thing to take place. So you have this nation who is coming uh, against the other nation, and the, the Ukrainian president is reaching out to the rest of the world to, hey, I need help. I can't, I can't repel this aggressor on my own. Send over whatever you can. We'll take whatever you want to send in order to repel this. And maybe NATO is sort of a national, could serve as a national police force in order to protect, you know, the nations, at least the nations that are a part of the, uh, the agreement there or the accord. So, what is the response when you have this aggressor who is sinning? Well, one possible option or opportunity is to muster up your forces and resist and fight against it. So Romans chapter 13. Another possibility, and um, I kind of turn to some of the things that Jesus says, uh, is to wait on the Lord, to trust in his deliverance. You also have in the Bible where you have a nation coming in and attacking another nation and overcoming and conquering it, and the people can't do anything about it, nobody else. You've been defeated. There's, there's just nothing, no other way to, to say it. You've been defeated, and you are under the, uh, uh, the oversight and the authority of this aggressing nation. That happens sometimes. During the time of Jesus, it was the Romans who conquered the area. There was a sect of the Jews who were... They were called zealots, and, and their job, they saw it as the, the, 
They were to rise up and to incite rebellion against the Romans and to throw off the Roman rule. So uh, um, you have this going on. There's nothing you can do sometimes. It just overtakes you. So what do you do? Well, we're not without recourse. We can trust in the Lord always. We believe in God and he's greater than all of the nations and, and he is the one in, the char- in charge. So wait on the Lord. Matthew chapter 24 Beginning in verse 31. Now again, this is in that chapter where, uh, of the end times. So this is Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. He says here, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the sun will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming out of the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the Lord comes and he will deliver his people. Uh, Along the same lines, I'm just going to read these, is the idea that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So again, we're trusting in the Lord. This is another option. And of course, if you're going to raise up an army, that doesn't mean, if you're Christian anyway, that doesn't mean that you're not going to trust the Lord. But anyway, the Christian, we trust in the Lord that he will deliver. So vengeance is mine, Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. This passage is echoed in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome evil, do, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's a really tough passage there because it says don't, don't just trust that the Lord will deliver but in the meantime feed your enemy and um, give him drink and so on. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 28 through 31 it says anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, War comes because the world is full of sinners. And when war comes, there are two possible responses or maybe, you know, a combination of them. You can rise up and fight and resist and protect yourself or, and you trust in the Lord, he will take care of his people. And those are both legitimate responses. All right, the second point is this. War comes for judgment against sin. War comes for judgment against sin. Now this is a little bit different. Here you don't have a sinful aggressor, but rather you have usually God behind it in order you know, to bring about judgment on somebody or a nation in particular because of the sinfulness that they are guilty of. 
So the first or one example is the Canaanites. Now you remember God gave the land, the promised land to the people of Israel, right? Well, the promised land wasn't empty. You had a number of nations who lived in that land. And God instructed them, go into the land, conquer them, do not let anybody live, and do not make any kind of agreements with them. Now, this is pretty strong. This, this is, you know, viewed by some as harsh. You know, go into the land, kill them all, and take the land. Now, what is the reason for this, or what is the rationale behind this? We actually have a prophecy of this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, where God, who has even foreseen the time of enslavement in Egypt, he says this, in the fourth generation, that's 400 years about, which is what the, the slavery in Egypt was, in the fourth generation they shall, they shall return here, this is to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The implication is, but in 400 years it will be. Now being complete means it has come to a, a the ripening point or the point in which it is worthy to be judged. And that's exactly what happens. So the people of Israel, they're in Egypt, 400 years passes. In that 400 years, the people of Canaan are corrupt down to the heart and God is going to bring judgment upon them. And he uses the people of Israel coming into the land and conquering them. This is not the first time in the Bible where God brought judgment against, the, against people for sin. Uh, one huge uh, example would be Noah's Ark and the Flood, right? Where God destroyed the world because of their sinfulness. So this is the same sort of thing. Judgment comes against the nation because of their sinfulness. During the period of the judges, now, so the people of Israel, they, they conquer the land, but uh, they don't conquer everything, and there are these pockets of resistance and they don't trust the Lord for complete uh, conquering or, or whatever. And, and uh, they cause the people of Israel to depart from the Lord. And when they depart from the Lord, the Lord sends a neighboring nation against them in order to judge them for their sinfulness and for departing from Him and for failing to trust in Him. So in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, just to bring out one of these examples... It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods among, from among the gods from the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers and who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Another great example of judgment against sin is with the people of Israel and the Babylonians. So um, a bunch of years pass, the people of Israel are in the land, but they are refusing to follow God. And at some point, the Babylonians come and conquer the land of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, it says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. That's a pretty graphic statement right there. 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or of the stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations before that were before you. So when we talk about the war in Ukraine, it, it is impossible for us to pass a moral judgment upon the people of Ukraine. Maybe this is coming against them because of their sinfulness. I don't know. It's possible, right? Isn't it? A, it's a possibility. I mean, we don't know what's going on there. I mean, it's like if the if we, the United States, began to be conquered, it's possible because of our sin, right? I mean, it's possible. But we don't know. They, they could fall, this, this war could fall into the first category of just, you know, a, a sinner coming in and that's it. But it's possible that, you know, maybe the Ukrainians are sinful. The Ukrainians, they're not Christian. It's not a Christian nation. Well, I, I mean, they call themselves Christian, but it's not what we would call, you know, Bible-believing personal relationship with Jesus kinds of Christian. There are those there, but not uh, everybody in the nation. So, uh, you know, this could come as a result of sinfulness. But regardless, what is the response in this case? Well, the response here would be a response of repentance from sin, prayer and repentance of sin. And of course, you know, in this kind of case, it, it is something that needs to be done anyways, I mean, even whenever something bad happens to us, one of the appropriate responses is, Lord, if I've done anything, I'm sorry. I mean, this is from a genuine heart, right? I'm sorry, please forgive me of my sins. And, and of course, you can think of things in your life that aren't perfect before God. And so you fall and you confess and as, at the same time while you're asking him for deliverance. Daniel did this. Now, Daniel, during the Babylonian captivity, he was taken over to Babylon and he saw from the prophecies, he understood that the time of the Babylonian captivity was coming to an end. So what does he do? He prays this prayer of repentance and confession. So this is Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, that's the book of Jeremiah, the number of the years specified by the word of the the Lord through Jeremiah, the prophet, well, there it is, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he understands it's going to be 70 years of this captivity. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And he continues to pray and ask for forgiveness for the sins of the people. Not his sins alone, but the sins of all of the people. He's interceding. Now, the next point is that God can use war as an instrument of judgment. Now, we see that judgment comes or can come because of the sin of the people. Now, the people of Israel, the people of Israel, uh, you have the prophet Habakkuk. 
Okay, so it's one of those little books towards the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk, he is, he is a righteous man, and he's looking at the people of Israel, and he says this in verses 3 and 4, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm not going to read it, but he basically says, Lord, the people of Israel, they're sinning over and over again. Aren't you going to do anything about it? God replies, and he says in verse 6, Yes, I'm going to do something about it. I'm sending the Babylons to punish the people. Habakkuk, verse 13 of chapter 1. What? You are purer. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. And you can't look on wickedness. How come you're sending someone worse than the people? I know I was complaining about the sin of the people, but the Babylonians, they're worse. How can you send them? To bring judgment against your people. And God replies, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's a, that's a passage that's quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. And then he goes on to say, God does, Don't worry about it, I'm going to judge the Babylonians too. Everyone's going to receive what they deserve to receive. But, but here's the point. It is this, that sometimes a bad thing can come upon, uh, well, bad people can be judged by somebody that's worse than them. And that's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow, but it happens. So if we consider in our day, uh, there are some true believers in Ukraine, right? Right? True believers in Ukraine. And yet, they are feeling the brunt of, you know, the whole situation. Uh, the, the pl- this uh, plague, this pestilence, this uh, corona thing has come against all of us. And many Christians have gotten sick too. And so on and so forth. You know, we, we can just kind of compound the examples here that God can use different instruments or anything he wants in order to bring this judgment against sin. Um, the people of Israel, Jesus addressed the people of Israel. There was this tower that fell and it killed, the pe- killed a bunch of people in Israel. And so Jesus brought this up and he says, do you think that they were the worst sinners in Israel? That, the, you know, the tower fell on them and killed them? Do you think that they were the worst people? And he said, no, they were not the worst people. You should be thankful that it wasn't you. In other words, we all have sinned and what is, you know, we all deserve death as a result of that. And it's only by God's grace that we continue to live and move and have our being. It's his grace, right? Right now we're alive by the grace of God. Praise be to the Lord. And so we should make the most of what is happening here. So this brings us to our last point. And the last point is this. Old Test- in the Old Testament, war points to the life of war that we experience in the New Testament. So, in other words, we see a whole lot of war in the Old Testament. And I really, uh, well, we see a whole lot of war in the Old Testament. And all of these wars that take place in the New Testament are really uh, serve, as part, part, serve partly as pointers to us in the New Testament that as believers, we are going to be engaged in warfare as well. So, here it is. We are told, because of how we read the Word of God, that our life as believers is one of a warfare. Now, in what way? I am going to minimize the first three points and just kind of highlight this last one. That's the big one there. Old Testament war points to a life of war for believers. So, 
What do we have? What does this mean? Well, first of all, war is a sign of the Lord's return, right? We've already talked about this, that the closer we get to the end times, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. They're going to increase. So as they increase, we as believers should look and see that and know, hey, Jesus is coming. And whatever that you know, impact is on us, it should move us to serve him and to anticipate and look for his return, to expect it with joy, because his return is a joyous event for us. So, whenever we see war, it points us that Jesus' return is coming, and it's coming quickly. All right, second, secondly, believers wage war against the devil and his minions. So we're talking about real war here. This is, this is not just kind of symbolic uh, warfare. There is an enemy that we have, and it is a spiritual enemy, and we are at war with him. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So we're fighting a real enemy who is really out to get us, and the intensity of this is like warfare. The third point here is that believers wage war against the world. Believers wage war against the world. So we are Christians. We have been saved. We strive to live a righteous life, but the rest of the world continues on in its sinfulness. We are not to engage in that sinfulness, but rather we are to stand against it. And there are some pretty tough battles that we are fighting in our culture today. Plus, on an individual level, there are a whole lot of temptations that we are fighting against that are coming upon us from the world. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he says, wage the good warfare. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. So we as believers have this a war that we are engaged in with the world. And then finally, and this is the third point here, it says, believe, uh, um, I, it says believers wage war against the flesh, or the inner man versus the outer man. Um, so th- this is kind of the personal battle that each one of us fights against. So it might be our thoughts, and, and actually in Second. Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it it talks about the battle in our minds and it puts the warfare language into it. And that's that's a huge battle that many of us, if not all of us, have to deal with. Our thought life and the thought processes and the things that we allow ourselves to think on and dwell on, it causes us to fall into temptation or to get depressed or just to think wrongly about life and and, uh, and so on and so forth. There's a, there's a battle that's waging within us as individuals. And so in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, in this section, Paul is just kind of reflecting this inner battle. He says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And he goes on to say, but praise be to the Lord. Jesus is our, as, you know, our victory from this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter encourages the believer, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So again, it's just put in this warfare language. And as we f- 
finish up here, I want us to uh, consider, now, now here's, the, here's the question, and I want your feedback. I've done all the talking tonight, but uh, at this point I would like from, some feedback from you. So picture yourself going to Ukraine and joining the forces that are fighting against the Russians. What would that be like? Well, what would characterize you in your fight or as you fight? What would be some, some things that you would have to deal with or cope with as you are fighting for Ukraine? What, what would be some of those things? How would it, what would fighting be like, Tyson? Okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What else would it be like for you to be there and fighting in the midst of the fight? What would be some of the sacrifices maybe or what, what would characterize your battle? Fear? fear? Yeah, have to deal with fear? Sure. And you have to overcome it too, right? Yeah, Terry. Yeah. Right. Yeah, especially if you can't communicate with them, right? Or and you know it goes both ways. They're wondering what's happening to you too. That's right. Yeah, especially if you're in the middle of the battle. It's you know that's important. You going to be able to watch your uh, television at night? No, I. No, what? You, a lot of sacrifice? You're going to have to sacrifice. If you're out there, you're making a lot of sacrifices. Right? Okay, what else? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just experiencing the loss. It grieves your heart when you see that. All right. Well, whatever it is that characterizes you in your fight, take that, if you were in Ukraine, take that and put it into the framework of these battles that we're fighting right now, these real battles. And, and I think a lot of times, uh, maybe some of the elements of sacrifice and the concern for those that are around us and those who are falling into sin and and on and on it goes. You know, we're just not so mindful of them as we would be if we were in the actual physical fight there. So we need to take some of these things and, I think, apply them to the battles, the war that we are fighting against the devil and against the world and against the flesh. So it's pretty intense, and, or it should be anyways, and we need to fight for Jesus, if you will, and stand up for, for him uh, he is our king, and we have pledged allegiance to him, right? And there is a kingdom that he is establishing here on this earth, and we are the ones who are fighting the fight here on this earth. All right, any comments or questions or thoughts on anything? Yeah. Yeah. As those around us, what we see you know, in, in, a, in a physical battle, you see brutality, you see death, you see those things all around you. But in the Christian walk, we need to realize that 
Yeah, we're kind of cold and hard to it. We can't see that clearly. But, hey, look, if that person, if your neighbor dies and he doesn't know Jesus, he's going to hell, and that's like an eternal thing. There's, you know, there's no second chance after that. Does, that. does that bother us? Do we think about it? Does that impact us? We, we need to take, we need to become more cognizant of the war, the battle that we're fighting around us. All right, good. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, well, let's pray and we'll uh, finish up. We'll be dismissed here.